On April 26, 2013, 25-year-old Jessica Haringa was working the night shift at the Exxon gas station on Sternberg Road in Norton Shores, Michigan. The store closed at 11.30 p.m. and Jessica was getting a jump start on her cleaning duties in order to get home to see her three-year-old son. At 10.55 p.m., a customer came into the shop and purchased a lighter. Twelve minutes later, a regular customer, Craig Harpster, stopped in to get gas and since he was paying with cash, she had to go inside and pay the attendant. Craig worked across the street and would regularly come in just prior to the store closing to get gas. He was familiar with Jessica and expected to see her inside, working on her closing duties. But when he entered the shop, there was nobody inside. He looked around the store to see if she was behind a shelf, but she wasn't. Craig opened the door to the walk-in cooler, thinking she might be in there, stocking beverages, but he still didn't find her. He honestly thought about just going to a different gas station, but as he walked by the register, he noticed the drawer was open and there was still cash inside. He also noticed Jessica's purse behind the counter, and he realized that something was definitely wrong. Craig called 911 and reported what he had found. When an officer arrived on the scene, he did a thorough search of the building and found that there was nobody there. When a second officer arrived, he called the property owner, who in turn called the manager, who only lived a few minutes away. Sue Fallett arrived at the gas station and confirmed that Jessica should have been there and that one of the cars in the parking lot was hers. If she had left on her own, she didn't take her purse, her jacket, or her car. This is Monsters. Jessica Haringa was born on July 16, 1987, and was the youngest of three daughters. Her family said that she was a good student, and by the 10th grade, she was already taking trigonometry. In her early 20s, she had a child with her boyfriend, Dakota Quail Dyer, and the two eventually got engaged. Dakota had been out of work, so Jessica was supporting the family by working at the Exxon station. When investigators arrived on the scene on April 26th, Detective Michael Kasher spoke to the store manager, Sue Follett, and she told him that not only were all of Jessica's belongings still at the store, but she had seen something suspicious not long before the authorities called her. She explained that she and her husband had been driving home on their motorcycle at 11 o'clock that evening, when they passed the gas station and noticed a silver minivan pulling up to the back of the shop. She knew that there were no deliveries scheduled for that late at night, and she thought someone might be planning to rob the store. They turned their bike around and went back to the gas station. When they pulled up, they saw a man putting something into the back of the minivan before closing the door, getting in the driver's seat, and driving away. She must not have been too concerned about the man's activities because she and her husband eventually continued home, where Sue was called by the property owner not long after. She and her husband said they couldn't get a license plate number, but they were sure that the vehicle was a Chrysler town and country. When investigators learned that Jessica had a fiancé, they called him and asked him to come down to the gas station. When he arrived, he told Detective Kasher that he hadn't seen Jessica since she had left to go to work earlier that day. Of course, anytime someone goes missing or is killed, their significant other is always the initial prime suspect, and for good reason. When a person is the subject of foul play, the most common person responsible is an intimate partner. Investigators will always put the spotlight on a victim's significant other right away because not only is it a likely place to look, but it also means they can eliminate that likely suspect quickly and move on to finding the real perpetrator. Of course, Dakota was immediately a suspect, but he explained that he and Jessica shared one car, so once she took it to work, he was at home with their three-year-old son with no means of transportation. When they called him and asked him to meet them at the gas station, he had to find a ride. Authorities looked at his cell phone location data and it showed that the phone was at their house the whole evening. 
Of course, he could have left the phone at home while he went out, but at this point, he would have had to find a ride, go to the gas station and make Jessica disappear, then leave the car at the gas station and get back home, all while he had a three-year-old to deal with. Oh, and he would have had to do that within the 12 minutes between when the customer had bought the lighter and Craig Harpster came in to get gas. It seemed unlikely, so Dakota was eventually cleared as a suspect. Investigators wanted to check the store's surveillance footage, but it turned out that they didn't have any. The only things authority found at the scene were a smudge of blood and the packaging from a Walther laser sight for a gun, both on the ground behind the store. The blood was sent for analysis and it came back a match for Jessica's DNA. The next day, Jessica's mother traveled to Norton Shores from her home about 90 minutes away. She made flyers and set up an area in a parking lot near the Exxon station to hand them out. People came from all over to take flyers and help find Jessica. Sue Follett had given the details of the man she saw behind the store to a sketch artist and that picture was published in the media. Thousands of tips came in because unfortunately the sketch was a little too generic. The sketch looked like it could be just about anyone, and investigators didn't get any promising leads from any of the tips. Detective Kasher found out that Jessica had a lot of visitors while she was at work. Her mother had moved 90 minutes away, and her sister, who was also her best friend, had moved to Florida, and loneliness was setting in. Many of the people who would come in and visit her on her shifts were men who seemed to have a romantic interest in her. Detective Kasher learned about one man named Jess Ammerman, a plumbing contractor who was always at the gas station. He was married, but he told the detective that the night she went missing, he visited Jessica earlier and professed his love for her. He told her that he wanted to divorce his wife and be with her. He said that she turned him down, and after that, he parked in a different parking lot and talked to his wife on the phone. He said that he was talking to his wife for about an hour from 10.30 to 11.30 p.m. Investigators did find a surveillance video of his van in the parking lot, and cell records showed that he was on the phone with his wife at the time for 54 minutes. The detective learned that another man had become smitten with Jessica before Jess had. That man was Rob Follett, the store manager's brother. Rob told the detective that about a month before she disappeared, she told him that things were not going well with Dakota and she was considering leaving him. He invited her to move in with him, but she turned him down. He said he had since gotten over the rejection, though. He told Detective Kasher that he went fishing the day Jessica went missing. Based on his cell phone records and surveillance footage, detectives were able to verify that he wasn't near the gas station at the time Jessica went missing. Seven months after her disappearance, Jessica's mother asked Detective Kasher if he had found any useful information in her journals. The detective said that he had never seen any journals. It turned out that Jessica's mother told Dakota to give her daughter's journals to the investigators not long after she disappeared, and he said he would. It seemed that he hadn't done that, and when the investigators finally got them, they could understand why. Based on what Jessica had written, Dakota was a bit controlling. She wrote about how he would check her call logs, and the reason they only had one car was because it made it easier for him to keep track of where she was. In one journal entry, she wrote that he had pinned her down and their son had come into the room and seen it. Dakota admitted that he was controlling at times, but denied ever being physically abusive. The detective spent some time looking at him as a suspect again, but all the information still made him an unlikely perpetrator. Detectives were back to square one and eventually the case went cold. At just after 6pm on June 29, 2014, a couple in Dalton Township, about 15 miles or 24 kilometers north of Norton Shores, had just left their home when they saw something on the side of the road. They initially thought it might have been an animal, but when they got closer, they realized it was a woman and she was severely injured. 911, where is your emergency? Um, the corner of uh, Riley Thompson and Automobile. It's on Automobile Road. This, we come up to this lady. She's laying in the road. I think she was hit by a car. Okay. She's got a head injury. Okay, so I'm gonna, Riley Thompson and Automobile? Yeah, on, on, automo on Automobile Road. Okay, which way from... 4300 
Automobile Road. 4300 Automobile. Okay, stay on the phone here with me, okay? I'm going to get some help right out there for you. Did you see what she happened a, to her? She has a pulp. I just came, we just came up on her. Is she, she unconscious? In the road. Yes, she is. Okay, you stay on the phone with me. Is she breathing? She is breathing. She has a pulse. Okay. Did you see who hit her? Does she have obvious injuries? She has a head injury. Okay. She's got a head injury and her, she's laying face down. Okay. Don't move her around, okay? Yep. We're not moving her around. Okay. Is she by herself? You need to hurry. She's all by herself. Okay. It's really irregular. My wife is a nurse, so she's... Okay, sir. I got help that's going to start on, start help. Okay. Okay. Mark and Michelle Clint didn't recognize the woman right away, but they would soon realize that she was their neighbor, Rebecca Bletch, who went by Becky. Becky was known to go out running in her neighborhood, and the Clints assumed she had been hit by a car while out for a jog. It wasn't until the paramedics arrived that they realized that Becky had actually been shot. She had three gunshot wounds in the back of her head. She was loaded into the ambulance, but died shortly after, never having made it to the hospital. A medical examiner would later determine that two of the gunshot wounds showed evidence that they were at close range. At the scene were Becky's cell phone, earbuds, and sunglasses. Investigators found one 22 caliber shell casing in the road, and two more in the grass off of the shoulder. Rebecca Bletch was born on November 23, 1977, in St. Ignace, just over the water in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. She started dating Kevin Bletch, and they had one daughter together, Ellie. They had been together for about 10 years before finally getting married in 2009, which gave Becky one stepdaughter, Megan, who was 21 years old at the time and didn't live at home anymore. Kevin was a boilermaker, installing and maintaining boiler systems, and Becky worked as an occupational therapist. When investigators arrived at the Bletch home to notify Kevin, they noted that he seemed visibly shaken to a point they felt was appropriate for the situation. He told them that he and Becky both left the house at about 8 o'clock that morning. Becky went to work at the occupational therapy clinic and Kevin took their daughter Ellie and they went to a cabin at another property the family owned in Luther, Michigan, about an hour and a half northeast of where they lived. He wasn't sure what time she had gotten home because he and Ellie had only gotten back about 10 minutes before the investigators arrived. They did find that Becky had texted Ellie at 5.18 p.m. asking her, quote, Did you go with Dad? It seemed that that was the time she got home, saw that Ellie wasn't home, and checked to make sure she was with her father. Then, authorities theorized that she went out for a jog after that. When Kevin was brought in for a more thorough interview, he said that he and Becky had a good relationship, he had never had an affair, and he never suspected her of having an affair. He couldn't think of any reason anyone would want to hurt her. He told investigators that all he could think of was that she had a few physical therapy clients that bothered her, but she had never mentioned their names. Of course, again, the spouse was immediately the prime suspect. Investigators heard that there were a couple of rumors about affairs, but most of the people close to the couple said everything was good between them. Detectives talked to Nancy Peterson, Kevin's first wife and mother of Megan. She said they got divorced because he was never around and it seemed like their lives were going in separate directions. Otherwise, she said their relationship was fine and there was no physical violence or affairs. Nancy told the detective that she really didn't think Kevin would do anything to Becky. When authorities looked into his alibi, both cell records and witnesses in the area verified that he was there. That proved that he hadn't committed the murder himself, but they still didn't know if he was involved in the murder some other way. Maybe he had found someone else to commit the murder for him. While detectives were looking into potential suspects, the medical examiner performed an autopsy where she found no sign of sexual assault. She noted three separate bullet wounds, one that entered above the right ear, a second that also entered near the right ear but further back, and a third on the left side of the back of her head, piercing the skull but exiting immediately. The first bullet and fragments from the second bullet were recovered, but the third was not. There were no other signs of trauma on the body. Meanwhile, investigators learned that Becky had a life insurance policy that would pay out over $200,000. 
that thrusted Kevin back into the spotlight and detectives questioned the family about abuse. But family members were adamant that there was no physical abuse happening between the couple. Both Kevin and Becky had good jobs and weren't having financial difficulties that would lead to a motive to murder for insurance money. The Bletches family would say in a later interview that they got the feeling that police were looking for anything to use to pin the murder on Kevin. They interviewed him again, but he got angry, ended the interview, and got a lawyer. On July 1st, 2014, investigators connected Becky's case with an incident that happened the day before her murder. A woman reported that she was about to go on a bicycle ride when she was approached by a man who she described as odd. He made her feel uncomfortable, so instead of getting on the bike trail, she went back to her vehicle and left. She provided a description of the man for a sketch artist, and it matched a registered sex offender in the area. They found him living at a house that he wasn't authorized to be at, and they searched the residence, but didn't find anything connecting him to the murder. They also compared his DNA to DNA found at the scene, and it wasn't a match. Investigators labeled the man an unlikely suspect, and, like Jessica Herringa's disappearance, the case went cold. At about 8 a.m. on April 16, 2016, Dawn Schmidt had just poured herself a cup of coffee and walked out of her house when she heard frantic yelling. She initially heard a male and female voice, but the female got louder and soon a young woman was running up her driveway yelling, quote, Help me, help me, help me, he has a gun. Dawn let the woman inside and locked the door, then she called 911. Where is your emergency? Creek, Creek, please come immediately. We have a man and he's picking up a girl and he has a gun and he's outside. Come immediately. Okay, we're going to get help there, okay? Stay in the line with me, okay? Stay in the line with me. Who has a gun? Well, there was a girl, she just ran up into my yard and she said that a, girl, a guy just came in and, uh, there was a, she just came up to my house and she, she, I let her in. She said a guy was speaking with a gun. Okay, so the guy is not there? The girl is so there? Sixteen-year-old Madison Nygaard had left her house at about 9.30 the night before and went to a party on Maple Island with friends. She made the unusual decision to not take her cell phone with her, though. That party was broken up by the police sometime before midnight, and Madison and her friend went to a different party at a vacation home on North Green Creek Road. While Madison was hanging out by a fire and drinking, her friend left and went to a different party, stranding Madison. She found another ride home, but that person ended up falling asleep. So early the next morning, she started walking home. The problem was that she didn't quite know where she was. She told investigators that she hadn't had anything to drink in the hours before she started walking home and she wasn't intoxicated. She walked around for hours trying to get to her grandmother's house who lived nearby but ended up getting lost. A man in a bicycle stopped to help point her in the right direction, but she wouldn't end up making it to her grandmother's house before a man in a silver minivan pulled up next to her and asked if she needed help. She asked if she could use his cell phone, but since cars were starting to approach behind him, he told her to hop in and use the phone so he could find somewhere to pull over. She agreed, but as soon as he started driving away, he locked the doors. She asked to use his phone, but he told her it was dead. She told him she wanted to get out, but he continued driving. When she demanded to get out, she said the man reached behind the seat and pulled out a gun. 
Madison immediately unlocked the door and jumped out while they were going approximately 40 miles per hour. She jumped up and started running, but the man had stopped and was standing at the back of the van, pointing a gun at her. She told the detectives that she heard him yell that it wasn't a real gun and that he was only joking, but she didn't believe him and continued running to the closest house, which happened to be where she found Don Schmidt. She was taken to the hospital where she was treated for severe road rash from jumping out of the moving vehicle. While there, she gave a physical description of the man and told the investigators that he was driving a silver Dodge Caravan. At the scene, instead of shell casings, they found two live rounds on the ground in the road. Authorities believed that the man had tried to shoot Madison, but the gun jammed. The bullets they found were ejected when he attempted to clear the jam. After ejecting two live rounds, he gave up and drove away. Detectives scoured the area for surveillance footage and found some at a nearby blueberry farm. In the footage, a silver Dodge Caravan can be seen passing by the property, pulling through the parking lot, and then pulling back out onto the street driving the same direction. It's important to note that Chrysler owns the Dodge brand, and a caravan looks very similar to a Chrysler Town & Country, a vehicle that has already been mentioned multiple times in this story. Investigators were able to narrow down a list of 31 people who owned that type of minivan in the area. While canvassing the addresses where those vans were registered, they located a caravan owned by a man named Jeffrey Willis at 1842 South Sheridan Road in Muskegon. Jeffrey Willis was born on March 6, 1970 and grew up in Muskegon County. He was the second oldest of five sons, but he told investigators that after both of his parents passed away, he only had a relationship with one of his brothers. He had no criminal record and by all accounts looked like a model citizen. He was known to spend time with his grandfather and he volunteered for the Salvation Army. He had one daughter, Erin, with a woman named Shannon Hall, who he was estranged from by the time she gave birth. Shannon died in a car accident when Aaron was only three years old and Shannon's parents gained custody of her. Eventually, Jeffrey married a woman named Charlene. He worked as a recycling waste hauler at Herman Miller, a furniture manufacturing company in Spring Lake. His route to work every day took him right past the Exxon station in Norton Shores. When investigators saw the minivan in his driveway, they knew it matched on the outside. But Madison had described there being a storage container made out of black netting between the front bucket seats, and when the detective was able to peek in the window, he saw a black net container that matched Madison's description. They showed a photo lineup to Madison, and she immediately picked out Jeffrey. Authorities got a warrant to put Jeffrey under surveillance, and they put a tracking device on his minivan. Over the course of the next week, detectives kept an eye on Jeffrey's movements. At one point, they watched him spend more than 15 minutes in the parking lot of a drugstore acting like he might have been looking for a new target. But he ultimately didn't do anything incriminating, so on May 17, 2016, they obtained a search warrant for his house and van and brought him in for questioning. They told him that they were questioning him because surveillance caught his van in the area of Madison's abduction, but he wasn't under arrest. When Jeffrey started talking to the detectives, he brought up Jessica Herringa's case within minutes. When the investigators asked him what he knew about the attempted abduction of Madison, he claimed that he didn't know anything about it. He knew that they saw a similar van to his in the area, but he said that a friend had told him that there were thousands of similar vans in the area. He said, quote, When that other girl got abducted in 2012, he told me there were like 5,000 vans in the area, or maybe the state. Then he said, quote, Her name was Jessica, I think. She went missing in 2013, not 2012. But he was definitely the type of person who would intentionally say the wrong date to make it look like he didn't know much about the case. Authorities would soon find out that he knew a lot more about the case than anybody realized. Of course, when they asked him where he was on April 16th, he said he didn't remember going anywhere. 
The detective told him they knew he got an oil change that morning, and he admitted that that was true. But it was easily something mundane that anyone could forget. He eventually said that he also probably went out to buy dog treats at the nearby PetSmart. The investigators asked him what he did after that, and he said he probably just went home. The detectives took their time trying to get Jeffrey to admit to being in the area of the abduction, but he was wise to their game. Did I, did I, was I there? No. That's what you need to know, right? When, where? When you say where? Well, this abduction, there. right? I'm not, a, I'm not an idiot. Okay. So, okay. What, well, what do you know about this abduction? What did you read? I just read that she jumped out of a moving silver van and she said somebody tried to abduct her. Jeffrey denied having anything to do with the attempted abduction and claimed to have never have been in the area. Then the detectives brought out a still from the surveillance cameras that captured his van in multiple places in the area. What reason would you have for... Uh, is that my van? It is. Well, how do you know that? Technology. <laughs> that doesn't answer it. <laughs> it kind of looks like my van, but... Yeah. I mean, it could be anybody's van, I guess. So that's kind of where I'm getting at. I mean... All right. So, were you going for a drive? Were you on your way up to I, Tommy? I was not up in North Muskegon, so I don't go that way. If I go that way, like I said, I go see Tommy, and I don't usually go that way. So, take the causeway. Um, that's a, that's another business on Whitehall Road. It's a van there. Oh, that was at nine ten. Um, so, I mean, do you, are you out for a drive, or? I, uh, I wasn't up there, so. so. Why were you up? I don't know, if I was up there for, I don't know why I would have been up there. I feel like a broken record saying this, but that's where Jeffrey's story changed. Now he claimed that they were out of dog treats at PetSmart, so he went to that area to go to the tractor supply right by where his van was seen on surveillance. So now, Jeffrey has gone from being home all day, to getting his oil changed, then getting dog treats at a nearby PetSmart, then going to the tractor supply. Seems like he did a lot of stuff for someone who remembered being home all day. Once the investigators heard that he had been in the area, they asked him where he went next. Just like every other time they'd asked him that, Jeffrey claimed that this time he really did go home. If I need tractor supply, I just go home. I don't know. This is north of tractor supply. Mm. So what route would you take home from tractor supply? Uh, he had asked back towards um, the causeway. And that's south of tractor supply. Well, you asked me which way I would go, and that right. way I would probably go. Well, what way did you go on this day? Because this is north of Tractor Supply. This is oh, about no. two miles down the road. I don't remember going up that way. Honestly, I don't remember even doing anything that day. So. I would have gone south. Then why is your van on another surveillance camera to the north? Jeffrey really wanted the detectives to think he was just at home during the time of the attempted abduction, but he couldn't seem to lie his way out of this. He clearly had been in the area at the time. Unbeknownst to Jeffrey, Madison had described the interior of his van and picked him out of a lineup, so they knew he was there. He willingly came into the interview thinking he could just claim to be home all day. He thought someone had just described a silver minivan, and there were tons of those, so he could just claim to be home and call it a day. By this point, he realized that that wasn't going to be the case, and he started clamoring to get out of there. He kept saying he needed to get home to let his dogs out, and suggested they could finish the interview another time. But the detectives knew he wasn't going anywhere. He started getting visibly agitated about it. I need to get home. Okay. Figure out why you were on that road. So, am I under arrest or not? Yes or no? I want some plain Yes or no? If not, I would like to leave. And I would like someone to take me to my van. And I want to go home. You can follow me all you want. I'm just going to go home, make the phone call, take the dog out, go up to the hospital, come back here later on, 
Let me tell you something, all right? And you don't have to answer anything. Okay. If I'm under arrest and I ask for a lawyer, you have to get me a lawyer. And you have to stop questioning. So get me a lawyer. I'm not answering any I'm not asking you any questions, all right? I'm just talking here, all right? Well, then I'm going to walk. We did a, just relax. We did a, are you arresting me? Just sit down, please. Will you please sit down? Okay. Listen, I'm trying to tell you, all right? I'm going to go. This, okay. We're not here to have a pissing match with you. I got a couple more things to say, and I want you to hear me out, all right? Okay? It's okay. that simple. The detectives finally sat Jeffrey down and let him know that he had been picked out of a lineup by Madison and that he would be charged with some type of abduction charge. They patted him down and placed handcuffs on him before transporting him to lockup. While he was being questioned, investigators were searching his house and van. In his van, they found a gray metal lockbox under the front seat. Inside was a Walther P-22 pistol with the serial number filed off, black gloves, handcuffs, four syringes, and what investigators believed was Viagra. In the driver's side door pocket, they found a large hunting knife in a sheath. In a storage compartment in the floor behind the front passenger seat, they found a black toolbox that was locked with a padlock. Inside were two Sony camcorders and what authorities generally refer to as a rape kit. There were gloves, rope, chains, and sex toys, as well as 22 caliber ammunition that matched the live rounds that were found in the road where Madison had escaped from her attempted kidnapper. There was also an illustration of a woman with various marks on her body with areas labeled medium speed, fast speed, and slower speed. It turned out to be a reference to how fast something is absorbed into the body when injected in those areas. Inside the house, investigators found a 380 caliber semi-automatic pistol that was registered to Jeffrey. They took three computers and an external hard drive that was found in a dresser drawer. But they also found another Western Digital external hard drive hidden inside of a heater vent. I bet you'll be surprised when you hear what's on that. Multiple receipts dated from between 2011 and 2013 were found for the Exxon station on Sternberg Road in Norton Shores. One receipt, dated January 29, 2013, had Jessica listed on the receipt under cashier. In a shed in the backyard, they found a bag with pornography and some papers. Of the papers in the bag, five were printed internet pages of a list of serial killers in the United States, with a mark next to the line item that said Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris kidnapped, tortured, raped, and murdered five girls in 1979. It seemed that Jeffrey was a fan of serial killers and particularly wanted to emulate the toolbox killers. Investigators learned that Jeffrey also inherited his grandfather's house on Bailey Street in Norton Shores, so they searched that property as well. Not much was found at the residence except for a piece of paper in a garbage can with a list of items that included handcuffs and keys, restraint bar, hood, ball gags, and gloves. It seemed to be a list of items Jeffrey needed for his rape kit. In the basement of the house, they found an excessive amount of bleach, which they believe was used to clean up the murder of Jessica Herringa. When the 22 caliber gun found inside Jeffrey's van was analyzed, a forensic specialist was able to repair the serial number which showed the firearm was registered to a woman named Michelle Schnatola Adams. There were no records of the weapon being stolen, so a detective went to her house to ask her about the gun. When he asked Michelle about the pistol, she immediately said, quote, Jeffrey Willis stole it, didn't he? It turned out that Michelle was a co-worker of Jeffrey's and they had worked together at Herman Miller for the last seven years. She told the investigator that she would hide the gun in a different location anytime they went out of town and when they returned from a trip in September of 2013, she couldn't find it but thought she had just forgotten where she had put it. She explained that Jeffrey knew she owned the P-22 because he talked about guns at work and she had mentioned it to him. She also said he knew where she lived. When the ballistics from the P-22 pistol were run, the bullets came back to the cold case murder of Rebecca Bletch. Though authorities suspected that Jeffrey Willis was guilty of more than just the attempted abduction of Madison Nygaard, they now had evidence that he was a cold-blooded killer. Authorities believed that Jeffrey pulled up and tried to abduct Becky as she was jogging, but she resisted and got away. 
He shot her once, but she was able to crawl away and he got out and shot her two more times in the head, execution style. The computers, hard drives, and multiple DVD-Rs were analyzed by the forensic specialists at the Michigan State Police Computer Crime Lab and what they found only added more proof that Jeffrey was a violent predator. Many of the discs contain images and videos of underaged girls, some teens, some as young as six to eight years old. On one of the PC computers, a series of folders with information about both Becky and Jessica were found. Forensic examination of the evidence seized revealed a user-created folder titled VIX, with subfolders inside titled JLH, parentheses DZ13, RSB, parentheses FZ plus C14, and SCANS. The titles of the first two subfolders corresponded with Jessica Lynn Herringa's and Rebecca Sue Bletch's initials. The letters and numbers within the parentheses were found to be a code for the dates April 26, 2013, the date of Jessica's disappearance, and June 29, 2014, the date of Becky's murder. The first D being the fourth letter of the alphabet represented the month, Z being the 26th letter represented the day, and 13 represented the year. In the second, F is the sixth letter of the alphabet, so it represented the month, Z plus C was 26 plus 3, which represented the day, and 14 was the year. Not what you would call a genius cipher, but he was trying. Pornography involving females that looked similar to Jessica and Becky were saved within each of the folders that corresponded with their initials. Also within the folders were missing and reward information flyers on each of them. Also on the computer was a folder that contained pictures and information for hundreds of escorts all around the state of Michigan, and other pornography depicting extremely violent sexual acts. There was also a folder with videos from a hidden bathroom camera that showed underage girls urinating. At the beginning of those videos, you can see Jeffrey himself setting up the camera. Jeffrey Willis was charged with one count of first-degree murder, felony possession of a firearm, and four counts of possession of child pornography. Jeffrey pleaded not guilty to the charges, and the trial began. His defense was to basically claim that everything other people are saying about him was not true. He claimed that he had purchased the gun from Michelle and that the serial number was already filed off. She had told investigators that she also believed that Jeffrey had stolen some of her underwear and he claimed that she willingly gave them to him. He also claimed that his cousin, Kevin Bloom, was the one who murdered Becky. The reason for that was because Jeffrey didn't have any connection to Becky, but Kevin's daughter and Becky's daughter played soccer together. Clearly, personally knowing someone is evidence that you murdered them. Kevin's name had come up in the investigation and detectives questioned him. They also questioned his wife, Rhonda, who said that on June 29, 2014, both she and Kevin were in Grand Haven, about 25 miles or 40 kilometers south of where Becky was murdered. They were attending a graduation party and then one of their kids' soccer tournaments. She said that Kevin had slept in and met them at the graduation party, then he went to the soccer tournament and was there until after Becky had been shot. She said there was no way he could have been in Dalton Township at the time of the murder. The parents of one of the other soccer players gave authorities pictures that showed Kevin at the tournament that day. Rhonda testified in court about his alibi. When investigators interviewed Kevin, he told them that Jeffrey had called him and told him about killing Rebecca. He had told him that he pulled up next to her while she was jogging and tried to put a rope around her neck, but she managed to get away. He said that he shot her in the back of the head once, but she was still alive, so he got out and shot her two more times. He also tried to point authorities to where he said Jessica had been buried, but when they took him out to the area to look, he said Jeffrey had only described it on the phone and he wasn't exactly sure. In a last-ditch effort to convince the jury that he was innocent, Jeffrey took the stand and testified in his own defense. He claimed that the sex items in his van were items that he and his wife had purchased in an effort to spice up their sex life. Then he explained this. My wife and I had purchased some toys, and they were in the house. Uh, are we talking about sex toys? We are. Um, 
they were in the house in my closet. I think there was a picture of it in the pink room, I think they called it. Um, that was my closet. And the, they were in a shoebox in there. And my, gra my grandson would come over on Wednesdays. And my, my wife would watch him, but this particular Wednesday, um, she had something at church. She had to do something. And um, I had to stay up and watch him. While he was in the other room, we were playing hide and seek. And he he got in there and brought me a, a pair of the handcuffs. And um, I quickly took away from took them away from him. And I thought to myself, when he's gone, I'm gonna get these out of the house. Well, the first thing I was gonna do was lock them up. And then the second thing was, after I thought about it, I thought I'd just get them out of the house altogether. So that's how they ended up in the toolbox. Because of that, Jeffrey kept those items in a locked toolbox hidden inside his van. Seems reasonable. Part of the defense's argument was that Jeffrey couldn't have been in Dalton Township at 6 p.m. because, like Kevin, he had an alibi. He was at home mowing his lawn. Except his wife didn't recall what he was doing that day and nobody else had seen him, so he didn't have an alibi. When the defense brought up Madison, Jeffrey admitted that he had picked her up the morning of April 16, 2016, but his version of events was much different than hers. He claimed that she accepted his offer of a ride and got into the van. And as I'm coming down, I realized I still had a bunch of junk. My wife gets into me about that. I, I don't clean up my van as often as I should. There was a, a lot of junk on the seat, so I swung into the blueberry farm to kind of get it so if she did need a ride, she could just hop right in. So. After you did, and I assume that's what you did. Yes. And after you did so, I'm sorry. What? After you after you cleared the seat, what do you do? Well, I went down and pulled up next to her and asked her if she was okay. She didn't look like she was just crying and distraught. I guess. Okay. That's way to look, describe it. Okay. So she she looks she looks upset at the time. Yes. Okay. And what do you? Are your windows up? My windows, no, they were down. Okay. So when you pull up uh, next to her, you're sitting in the driver's seat? Yes. Passenger seat next to you? Was, yeah. Was and open. then she's outside the vehicle on the road? Yes. Okay. And so you're talking to her through the passenger seat window? Yes. All right. So did you exchange words with her? I asked her if she was okay. Uh, she said, no, I can't find my home, is what she said, which is kind of weird. But um, And how do you respond? I asked her if she needed where she lived, and she said she didn't know. She said something about buys. Okay. And so how did, did, did that, did you leave? No. What happens then? I asked her if she needed a ride home, and she said, Okay, that's how she said it. He couldn't remember what he had done that day, a month after the fact, but he could remember how she said okay when he asked her if she needed a ride more than a year later. Jeffrey confidently said that he was taking his dogs out to Duck Lake to play with them. Remember how before he had no idea why he would be in that area and claimed he was home all day? Well, now he perfectly remembers taking his dogs to Duck Lake when he saw a girl walking down the road who looked distraught. He claimed that she seemed like she was on drugs, and when he offered her a ride, she got right in. Once they started driving, the automatic locks engaged, and she suddenly freaked out and asked to get out. According to him, he slowed down to let her out and tried to give her his cell phone, but she started yelling and jumped out of the van while it was still moving. So what did he do after he innocently offered a ride to a young woman who seemed to him to clearly be having some sort of issue? He fled. He didn't check on her. He didn't stick around to give his side of the story. And even though it was all over the media afterward, he never came forward. Then, when he was asked about the incident by detectives, he claimed he wasn't there. When his lawyer asked him about the computers that contained child pornography, 
He said that he had gotten them from a friend that was getting rid of them because of a move. He claimed that he had never used them. He did admit to having violent pornography on his hard drives, but that was because he and his wife had stopped having sex and that was his outlet. On cross-examination, the prosecutor asked him about those videos. My question was, since you and your wife were no longer engaged in sexual relations, your outlet, if I understand correctly, is thousands upon thousands of abduction, torture, rape, kill videos. That's your outlet. My outlet was porn. Okay. That included women being abducted, tortured, raped, and killed. It was, there were zip drives, so whatever was on the zip drive. Well, I'm asking you, you were watching videos of women being abducted, tortured, raped, and killed. Uh, there was some that I seen, yes. Some? How about thousands? There was thousands of videos on there. I didn't see them all. And uh, you were familiar, I'm sure, as Mr. McCarthy was describing to the jury this video about the jogger. Remember that? I do. And uh, you watched that video too, didn't you? No, I did not. Okay. The prosecutor was referring to a specific video on the hard drive that depicted a woman jogging before being abducted and raped. It's believed that that was the inspiration for what Jeffrey intended to do to Becky. He also told the prosecutor that he created the folders about Becky and Jessica in order to keep documents that would prove he wasn't involved. He was so paranoid about being blamed for two separate, seemingly unrelated crimes that he made a folder of proof that he couldn't have committed them and then used a secret code to label the folders. People said they saw a van matching his at the gas station when Jessica was abducted. But why would anybody think he was involved in Becky's murder? Based on his own testimony, he had no connection to her and nobody had seen a similar van or anything related to him in the area that day. Him thinking he would be connected to that crime is either an incredible psychic phenomenon or he anticipated he would be connected to it because he did it. But let's recap. Jeffrey Willis is innocent, and he's just so unlucky to have all of these coincidences happen. He owned a van that matched the one that was seen during Jessica's abduction. He worked near the gas station where Jessica was abducted. He had been in the gas station where Jessica rang him up. He was in possession of the gun that killed Becky. He was in possession of gloves that had Becky's DNA on them. He had thousands of videos of violent porn depicting abduction, rape, torture, and murder, the very same thing he's been accused of. He just happened to get a couple of computers from a friend that had child porn on them. He had a list of serial killers and highlighted the ones who drove around in a van, abducting, raping, torturing, and killing young women. Michelle Schnatala Adams was lying about her gun being stolen. Madison Nygaard was lying about him attempting to abduct her. Two bullets that were the exact same kind as the ones he had in his possession just happened to be in the road where Madison had jumped out of his van. Kevin Bloom, his cousin and good friend, was lying about borrowing his gun. The gun he supposedly purchased already had the serial number filed off and he didn't register it because he thought he didn't need to, despite owning a different handgun that he had registered. He had folders on his computer that he had created to store proof of his own innocence about two separate unrelated cases. Like most narcissists, Jeffrey thought that he could take the stand and charm the jury, but when he was cross-examined by the prosecutor, he came off as arrogant and evasive. He didn't do himself any favors. After only an hour and a half of deliberation, Jeffrey Willis was found guilty of first-degree premeditated murder and a felony firearm charge. At his sentencing, his defense lawyer asked the judge if Jeffrey could leave for the impact statements, and the judge said he wasn't legally required to be there. Impact statements are commonly used as a means of the victims and their families telling the perpetrator how they affected their lives, but that's not necessarily their intended purpose. Impact statements are for the victims and their family to tell the judge how the perpetrator affected their lives so the judge can use that information when deciding the perpetrator's sentence. 
Since he wasn't required to be there, Jeffrey walked out of the courtroom, staring down Becky's family the entire time. Not only that, but he blew a kiss to them right before walking out the door. It seemed like strange behavior for an innocent person. Why would an innocent person intentionally want to upset the family of the victim? It's because he's a psychopath who gets off on other people's pain. He couldn't help himself. He was sentenced to life without parole. In a hilarious turn of events after the sentencing, the sheriff's deputy who was assigned to transport Jeffrey to the prison didn't like that his prisoner had left before the impact statements had been read, so he got a recording of them and played it during the two-hour drive to the Cotton Correctional Facility. In 2018, the Rebecca Bletch Law was signed into Michigan law that now requires convicted criminals to be in the courtroom during victim impact statements. Also in 2018, Jeffrey went on trial for the kidnap and murder of Jessica Haringa. Kevin Bloom had told investigators that Jeffrey had called him the night of the murder and asked him to meet him at the vacant house that was once Jeffrey's grandfather's. When he arrived, he saw Jessica's body and he helped Jeffrey wrap her body in a sheet and bury it in a pre-dug hole on Sheridan Road. Jeffrey was found guilty and given another life sentence without the possibility of parole for the murder, plus 18 to 40 years for the kidnapping. It's safe to say that Jeffrey Willis will never get out of prison. Kevin Bloom was convicted of accessory to murder and sentenced to time served plus wearing an ankle monitor for a year and five years of probation. Despite Kevin saying he knew where her body was buried, Jessica's remains have never been recovered. Jeffrey Willis took pleasure in other people's pain, so much so that he couldn't help but show his true colors after being convicted of Becky's murder. He wanted to follow in the footsteps of other monsters who kidnapped, tortured, raped, and killed young women. But his reign of terror was cut short and this monster will be forever caged. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233, or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.